Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. You know it's going to be a good episode when it's with someone with the title Chief Civic Architect. That is exactly what we have going on today with Michael Brown. I love this interview for a number of reasons. Two of those reasons are, one, Michael has a long history working on issues around race, economic inequality, and how do we weave together as a community to address these gnarly, complicated, difficult issues. He is so eloquent on all of that. And then two, it's such a beautiful reminder of the fact that we need to engage people in this work through conversation by inviting questions. I mean, his title alone, which he'll tell you the story about how he came up with the title, it invites a question, what is a civic architect? He will answer that for you in this episode. He will probably spark more questions than maybe give us more answers. And I, I just have so much gratitude to Michael for that. If you would like to continue the conversation, I know I was left, like I just wanted this interview to go on and on. If you end up feeling the same, you have questions, you want to share what you took away, let's do it in the Marketing for Good Facebook group. If you haven't already joined, I invite you to do it today. I can't wait to see you there. And I just cannot wait to have you meet the one and only Michael Brown. Welcome to the Marketing for Good podcast. I am Erica Mills Barnhart, your host. With me today is Michael Brown. Michael is the Chief Architect of Civic Commons, a new regional civic infrastructure aimed at uniting more community voices in decision-making to advance racial and economic equity. Prior to becoming a civic architect, and yes, we are going to ask him to talk about what the heck that means, Michael served in a variety of capacities at Seattle Foundation, most recently as Vice President of Community Programs. He began his tenure at um, the foundation in 2001, so has been there for quite a while, and over the years has led efforts to elevate community voice, foster public-private partnerships, and tackle complex challenges in the areas of affordable housing, economic racial equity, and policy and system change. He led the development of Seattle Foundation's Center for Community Partnerships, which focuses directly on targeted efforts to achieve greater racial and economic equity. You are, I hope, seeing a theme in Michael's work. He is a veteran of funder collaboratives and collective impact efforts, including at Skill Up Washington, the Roadmap Project, Communities of Opportunity, and the Sustainable Communities Funder Group. Here's something else I want you to know about Michael. He is a way back when alum of the University of Washington's Evans School, where I also went and am now on faculty. He is a number one coffee drinker and martini sipper and father to one of the cutest boys on the planet. Welcome, Michael, to the show. How are you? I'm good, Erica. Thanks for having me. 
Ah, thanks for being here. How is uh, the adorable uh, one? <laughs> the adorable one? I had to pause there for a second. Which one? Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, he's 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 great. Um, we we just completed uh, school day, and now he is out and about just um, riding his bike. But he is in um, yeah, he's in a really good place. He also got a haircut. Um, you know, we don't need to talk about how um, <laughs> we talk about homeschooling, but you know, home barbering I think is turning into something as well. So, <laughs> oh yeah, uh huh, it really is. Okay, so who gave the haircut? Oh, I, I gave him the haircut. So, I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's surely not professional quality, but none, nonetheless, you know, there are definitely a few spots where it's like, well, no one's really going to see you. So, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I find it kind of ironic. We will move on to more substantive matters, but for (laughs) I find it really hilarious that all of us are obsessing so much about our our hair and stuff because we don't see anybody up close except our family. Exactly. And we're also over each other. It's like, Oh, look, the exact same outfit again, mom, the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) So I think he's safe. Plus he's, how old is he? He's, he's little. Uh, Seven. So seven. See at seven, when you have weirdness with your hair, it's like cute. Well, it also, you know, seven, older, you know, mm. yeah, I was going to say also at seven, you're not in vain um, in terms of, you know, the, you know, the appearance. So you can kind of get away with certain things. Okay. Well, I applaud you for the, for the effort, the barbering effort. <laughs> um, so when I have guests, I always start by reading their bios more or less. And oftentimes I will say like, for instance, I had Akhtar Bacha on. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, um, yeah. and you know, you hear Octor's bio and you're like, so you went from an architect architect to like where you are today. You know, it's like nonlinear, but when right. I hear your bio, it's actually, it sounds to my ear quite linear and logical. And I'm, I'm just curious if you would share, like, was that your intention to just sort of kind of sort of happen that way? And, and then because your bio is so buttoned up, I just have to ask like, <laughs> Are there any fun weird jobs that you did that aren't on the the OR, the official resume? You know, make us all feel better. Those of us who have nonlinear, wacky career paths. <laughs> um, you know, it's a great question, Erica. I, when I think about, in particular, the past twenty five years, no, actually, it is pretty linear. So after I, I left grad school in ninety five short tenure at a statewide nonprofit association where I I moved into a deputy director role. And then in 97, I moved over to Seattle City Council as a legislative aide for a Seattle City Council member. So I was there in that role for four years, moved to Seattle Foundation in 2001 as a program officer, 2002 was promoted to a director, 2008 moved into a vice president role of a, a, a program. So, you know, as I think through it, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a pretty linear progression. This, this new, <laughs> new title, uh, or it's not new anymore, mm-hmm. but, um, civic architect is actually, you know, in, in some ways it's also linear. One of the ways I, I would describe myself and I, and I think my colleagues internally would as well in, in my, uh, VP of programs role, was essentially to be the foundation's chief strategist mm-hmm. to identify how the foundation could best utilize its discretionary resources, its grant making dollars, its impact investing dollars, um, its convening power, its its voice, 
And, and in, in some ways, I mean, you know, very, very similar to an architect, you are creating something, you're designing something, and then working with others to, to, to build, uh, to, to implement that vision. So, you know, it's just a, a little bit, of, a little bit of a different spin on, you know, what could have been just a, a, a rather traditional title, uh, but something that still conveyed, you know, what, what I tend to feel are some of the assets that I bring to uh, the professional setting. Now, did you come up with the title, or did somebody else come up with the title? <laughs> well, one one of the, one of the things that Tony Mestris, um, who's the president CEO at Seattle Foundation, and I will laugh about is that one. You know, Tony and I both operate at a thirty thousand foot level, so you can imagine you know the conversations that he and I have, and you know, uh, two. But he would also acknowledge, and I would acknowledge as well that naming things, name plating things to, you know, just not my, my strong suit, but we just happen to have this brainstorming session as we landed on the name of this, this initiative, mm-hmm. Civic Commons, that we were just kind of bouncing some, some names around in terms of title and civic architect, you know, our architect came into my head of just kind of thinking about the role and, you know, attaching civic to it. And and Tony Tony looked at me. He's like, I think you might be onto something. So we just played around with it, and it it just stuck. So you know, yes, I will say I came up with it, but you know, definitely inspired by by many other by many other things. Well, and it's interesting because uh, I mean, you sort of put a spun on two words. You know, if we go way back when again, like commons was actually a physical structure and a physical place, which would have required a more traditional architect. So I don't know. There's a there's a fidelity to these to to, to both terms that you know is yeah. in, is just interesting. But then civic architect does make a ton of sense. Plus, it's, let's just be honest. That's a cool title, Michael. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. 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 No, I, I've definitely gotten, um, you know, more questions, you know, about uh-huh. what the architect is and vice president of programs. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, in fairness, people might have made erroneous assumptions about you being vice president of programs, which sounds, you know, but I mean, that's part of why I love it, right? When I work with organizations and when I'm teaching, I'm like, you want your messaging to invite questions, not answer every single right. question somebody might have. So really it invites questions and it's also like quite visual. So I love it on many levels. Now, someday I, I won't have to preface everything with this, but <laughs> we are recording under the COVID-19 cloud. Yes. Sheltered in place. Yes. And I would say one of the things about COVID is that it's like forced us to question everything yeah. in so many ways, including like, what is community? What is society? You know, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? I mean, that actually really trips me up, right? Because to be a good neighbor now is to stay away. Right. And I've always, you know, thought about it in terms of proximity. So I feel like Civic Commons has, a, has like a really unique way of thinking through these questions. And I was, I'm just hoping you'll tell us more about how you think about Civic Commons, how you think through them, you know, where it came from, just all the everything about that. Yeah. Um, so the the general concept behind Civic Commons is actually a pretty simple one, Erica. Back in my old role as vice president of programs and, and leading the transformation of Seattle Foundation from a responsive grant maker to a proactive grant maker, focused on policy and system change, on upstream approaches, on 
uh, co-designing, co-creating strategies with community and particular communities that that are faced or living with the inequities that we're trying to to partner with them on and, and solve. But then also having a very laser focus on eliminating or reducing, if not eliminating, racial and economic inequity. And making that transformation and, and watching the investments and and the partnerships that that we entered into over the last five, six years of my tenure, seeing that and seeing you know what was happening was 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 great. I mean it, it told me that we were making we were making all the right moves. The reality though is that in order to truly get to to the mission um, and that's building a healthy and thriving greater Seattle region that Seattle Foundation on its own was not going to get there. That even mm-hmm. with that work and the good work, you know, it wasn't fundamentally going to shift outcomes. And, and that's something I'm sure, you know, we'll get into, you know, I, I have this, this distinction, of course, between what, you know, outputs are and what outcomes are. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> as we start to think through then what was needed in order to get to outcomes and sustainable outcomes that, you know, really were game changing, the realization that philanthropy plays a role, but not the only role, that the government, public sector plays a role, but not the only role, that the private sector plays a role, but not the only role, and that community, and, and understanding that's a, that's a big nebulous term at times, but once again, those who are dealing with the inequities of housing or economic instability or environmental justice really aren't at the table, aren't any table in terms of crafting the strategy that is meant to help address or alleviate their their inequity. So this concept around civic commons is a pretty simple one. How can we bridge the silos and divides that we have in the region. And everyone who's probably listened to this could, you know, will shake their head and or nod their head in approval. But we don't work well with each other. You know, the there's tension between these various sectors and community. And and then, you know, we also have a power strata where there are a lot of attention given to the individuals that have positional authority or control resources and not necessarily with those who have knowledge or once again, lived experience and those voices not being part of some power structure in terms of how to best allocate those resources in an equitable way to drive change. So the concept of the commons is how do we bridge in order to bond? Ooh, how do we bridge to bond? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to create the, the type of uh, civic muscle, the connective tissue, this mutual dependency that we need, that we need to, we need to bridge these divides in order to achieve some shared goals. How then do we communicate through uh, data what is happening in the region as it relates to shared prosperity, um, um, well-being, and then you know, do those things lead to then collective action? And and I know you know collective impact has has some positive and negative terms, but but you know the term that we try to to use is network weaving, where 
we are creating some synergy um, across the things that are that are, are occurring. So the, the best example I can give to that is pre-COVID, you know, one of the big issues that the greater Seattle region was was dealing with was was um, around affordable and, and middle-income housing. Mm-hmm. Challenge mm-hmm. is that we had 17 different things that were happening. So 17 different things or 17 different bites of 17 different apples. But the network weaving concept is, you know, 17 different bites is okay, but can they be from the same apple at least? Of course, um, we would never do that now because we're physical well, <laughs> distancing. We're not sharing apples right now. We're not sharing <laughs> apples right now. But yeah, yeah, not that, sharing that, an I, apple with you. Yeah, what I get the analogy though. Yeah, no, exactly. So now, now I have to come up with a better analogy, you know, post COVID in order to get that. So the, that that's that's the general concept, and 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 you know, once again, just kind of thinking about like marketing and, and communications. I mean, one of the things that we, you know, we're because even what I just said, I mean, to some extent, you know, you know, people get it and it's a lot of words. We'll try and break it down to in a very simplistic term. In order to get to the transformational, we need to build and strengthen the relational and experience mm-hmm. the transactional. What we do right now, we enter into the transactional state. We don't take the time to build relationship and build trust. And as a result, we 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 end up being satisfied with outputs, pat ourselves on the back, yay, versus wait, we've actually addressed root cause or some of the systemic reasons for this particular thing. And as a result, you know, how long have we been fighting to end homelessness? You know, 20, 20 plus years. You know, if we were able to bridge, you know, a lot of our divides and build relationship and trust and then, you know, connect the dots a little better, then maybe we would actually have the type of outcomes that we really want in the region. Why do you think it's so challenging to build trust? Um, I, think, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I think we've become... We've grown. I mean, and not just this region. I mean, just in the country overall, you know, back in the day, you know, people like you and I would not have been, there's no way we could have gotten into the rooms <laughs> where right. decisions were were being made. Um, it was a small select group. And I think, you know, it was a lot easier to kind of move things forward. Mm-hmm. As you know, we've grown and we've evolved, and you know, and 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 you know, we we see different um, types of leadership and and different folks who are um, emerging as leaders. It, a lot of the the old ways or the old relationships withered away, and then, I mean, this is my commentary. I mean, I also feel like we've become a bit more righteous in our stance. So you know, part of working together. We're working with people who, or well, just working overall, is that you, you have to be open to different points of view, and I and I think we have become very rigid in our thinking, um, which means that we don't necessarily want to build relationship with those who aren't aligned with us. You know, if we're trying to tackle something as big as housing or racial inequity or gender inequity or whatever it may be, I mean, we have to create the space for those who may have different perspectives and find some narratives that, that allow for bridging 
Um, so then we can get to a place of, you know, so the old language of consensus. I mean, I use mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of bonding of, you know, can we agree that in service to the commonwealth that we let go of certain things in order to find, you know, some, some commonality that allows us to then move issues forward. What I, what I find so fascinating about this is I, I would imagine that people listening to this are nodding along. I mean, like, yes, yes, that's commonality, common ground. Yes, yes, yes. And then you get into a situation where you like common ground ends up feeling like seeding ground or seeding your position. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like scary. It actually makes me think of Anand... Jira de Hardas, I'm just massacring his name, his last name. Um, wrote, <laughs> uh, you know who I'm talking about, though, who wrote uh, mm-hmm. Winner Takes All, Winners Take All. Mm-hmm. And he said, I won't get this exactly right. I, I was last week, we just covered this in my undergrad class, which is why it's fresh in my mind. But he said, you can aspire, I think he said the rich, but if we could say you can aspire the, the powerful to do more good, but never tell them to do less harm. Yeah, You can inspire them to give back, but not take class, inspire them to join the solution, but never accuse them of being part of the problem. You know, I love Anand's work. I have a couple of critiques of it, but, <laughs> but it does come to mind in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, this, I think, was one of his most in, in, insightful tidbits was this idea of like, oh... Oh, well, that gets complicated. Yeah. And it, I mean, it sounds similar, just you know, in a slightly different context. But also we're seeing this play out, right? If we if we think about philanthropy and like people sitting on a whole bunch of money. And so I mean Seattle Foundation's donor advised fund. And I forget who so there was this call to action, right? That was like sort of liquidate the donor advised funds. Uh, but they didn't say liquidate. It was like, let's make sure that at least oh, it was Fidelity who said they mm-hmm. were gonna make sure at least 200 million right? Like got into the communities, which is great. And I don't really want to take anything away from that because I think it's all good, but it's a bummer when you're like, okay, but there's like billions sitting there. So why aren't we going for the billions? And I think it really gets back to what you're talking about is this, this, this sense of loss and losing control and a lot of other things that happen when we go from theory to action. Yeah. And um, or to real theory to reality, maybe. Is. Yeah, no, I think I think I think that's right, and I think there's also, I mean, it you know, there, once again, I mean, the, this uh, this I think, Erica, is where it is it is so complex, and on one hand, you know, you definitely want to support any effort that is you know working to address. A critical issue um, with within any community, yet at the same time, we're not, you know, to some extent, you know, we're we're encouraging, you know, kind of fragmentation in doing that. So, you know, and and it, you know, it's it's not it's not trying to poke anyone, but let's face it, you know, like in the region, you know, going back to homelessness, you know, here are all the efforts that, that, you know, are popping to my head instantaneously. So a focus on youth homelessness, a focus on youth and family homelessness, focus on single adult homelessness, um, it, you know, and, and, veterans. And, it, and veterans. And, you know, like, and so, you know, and then there's the, the chronic, you know, single adult, you know, so like you have, um, and understanding, you know, they're, they're, they, you have different approaches that you need to take because of the population. But what happens is that, you know, you you then end up 
fragmenting and, and, and slicing and dividing things so much that, you know, how can you ever have impact? Because, you know, Funder X is doing this, but Funder Y is doing this, yet, you know, they both want to hold on to, you know, kind of their own unique approach and value add to it because, of course, they're investing in it. Yet, you know, when you really kind of start to think, you know, once again, when you start to think through many of these issues, yes, populations are different, but there are definitely, you know, some common threads that cut through, i.e., why are people becoming homeless? So I get the, you know, let, let, let's address kind of crisis response and, you know, kind of do that. Mm-hmm. But what are we also doing to keep, you know, kind of stop that inflow of people becoming homeless? And that's when you get into some of the gnarly structural things that, you know, frankly, for a long period of time, philanthropy didn't want to address, the private sector didn't want to address, public sector wasn't quite sure how to address. So, you know, and as a result, you know, you know, everything was like downstream versus, well, if we do X, that may start to slow the inflow. And then, and, and, you know, and thankfully, you know, we've, we, we have access to more data now and, and more knowledge. And now we know about the, uh, uh, the racial inequity, the racial disparities that are buried within many of these systems. So, you know, part of, and it's not, it's not a, you know, it's not a new thing, but, you know, heaven for heaven forbid, you know, 20 years ago, the approach was, all right, let's tackle these issues through the lens of disparity that we know. And if we know that people of color are more susceptible to homelessness, let's figure out how we keep people of color stably housed. And as a result, we might be able to figure out how we keep everyone stably housed. We're doing that now, but, you know, you know, it, it's because of the data piece and other things, you know, we've just become savvier in what we do. So it's a little bit of this, like, you know, um, white knight, you know, approach that yeah. sometimes takes or, mm-hmm. or the, the, the private sector takes versus, you know, actually stepping back and, and surveying the landscape and then figuring out Funder X is doing this, government entities doing Y, we can come in and play Z and be a connector of the of these two efforts versus what we just want to have this thing that we get to use. So we get to promote in our material, annual report, whatever it is. And the annual report, ah, the annual report. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting because when you, when we think about like at the, at the big picture level, again, everybody can say, yes, we want to make the world a better place. And the reality of philanthropy, I would say in particular, but this is true for nonprofits and social enterprises who get into it. It's quite bespoke. Mm-hmm. You know, like it quickly gets very much like, yeah, but I, I have this very special snowflake way that I that I want to address it, right? And I mean, of course, what strikes me and might strike some listeners is when I when I hear the language of making the world a better place and the language of mission, it's really funny. Like at the very high level, most people will agree. Like there's a lot of nodding mm-hmm. and as soon as you drop down to the next level, you can, you can hear in the words that people choose to use, like kind of their stance. And you could probably have some working hypotheses very quickly, just in the language that people use around, around, you know, if you're stick with, uh, you know, homelessness, is it about, is it about homelessness? Is it about affordable housing? It's of course about both. They're not mutually exclusive. 
but 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 with each of these layers it does it gets to be more more gnarly a more wicked problem and i think you know that's almost you can feel it like it's just talking about it gets very overwhelming yeah so i don't know how how you do that day in and day out as the architect <laughs> <laughs> and not get a little overwhelmed well yeah it, it is easy it is easy to to get overwhelmed um but or and the reality is is that and you and i've had this conversation and and not you know you know i i think it, it could be easy for you know for some of the listeners who who aren't parents you know to, to you know maybe roll roll their eyes a little bit but for me you know it's a parent of a seven-year-old and a seven-year-old who has access to privilege i mean there are, there are other challenges you know at raising a child of color but nonetheless a kid who has who will have access to opportunity and, and privilege as the parent of that kid being pre-covid very concerned about the path that the region was on as it relates to to the inequities i don't know if any parent felt confident that their child um as they became an adult would have the ability to purchase a house in this region yeah and you know i think that says a lot just in terms of like that if that's the path we're on where we feel okay right now in terms of pushing low income and people of color further out of the region we're now you know doing a pretty effective job of pushing middle income people out and then our kids are going to be faced with with some similar challenges. We haven't been able to solve our homeless problem. We continue to, to fight um, against ourselves, you know, as it relates to improving educational achievement for every mm-hmm. kid in the region. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, we, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be dealing with a lot of environmental justice issues, you know, like all of these things where you go, we have a lot on our plate. We got, we got a lot. We're not light on issues. Right. But we also don't have a lot of time and that yeah. we need to create some urgency around that and, and using, you know, using some communication around that. Of, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I was saying at the end of last year is we're, you know, really launching City Commons was laying that frame of 10 years with 10 years, you know, it, it worked well that we're moving into 2020 and then, you know, you, you know, you can jump ahead to 2030, but we have 10 years to figure out, figure out things. It's long enough to where we can actually see and track outputs and hopefully get to, you know, tangible outcomes. But just having that, that number, you know, kind of creates a little bit of a visual image that, okay, you know, once again, it's going to be hard work, but if, you build relationship, you build trust, you create this regional sense of belonging. We operate from common data and, and agree that, you know, that this framework of shared prosperity is where we want to be. And that we, you know, and it's a deviation from collective impact, but that because of the data points that we see, that we are going to align our activities in a way where we're leveraging these individual assets and, and, and things that we're doing for the commonwealth, for the collective good, then 
maybe we actually, we get to a place in 2030 where we can look back and go, wow, you know, we really did something here. Yeah. I mean, from a, a, uh, so for those folks who are listening who are like, oh my gosh, that is like huge. You know, I, I can't quite think on those, the 30,000 foot level, you know, organizations are, are, you know, the individual organizational level facing very parallel things in terms of how they can actually use things like scarcity. You know, Robert Caldini's work around that is fantastic. Um, Interestingly, you want to use time scarcity, like, you know, you think about being on the receiving end of some sort of donor appeal. This is why in the PS, it's like time bound, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because otherwise, we're like, why would I do it today? Like, I have no reason to do it today. And, and I have no reason to do it today. And, and sort of this, like, I feel like somebody else might take care of that. So I'm just going to let the, someone else take care of it. <laughs> so scarcity it, from a messaging perspective, a marketing perspective is, is super effective. One of the things that was interesting, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I did this like gigantic piece of research that became the Wordifier, the free online tool. Oh, Wordifier. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can go Wordify your world, Wordify.com. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we inadvertently found out, so so that was came out of this, you know, about the research came out of uh, novelty and how our brains respond to novelty. And then I paired it with this idea of language. But the other, the interesting thing which we found out was that actually the way nonprofits use language maps very unfortunately to the way that companies who are purposely trying to mislead you that there are very specific things that they do with their language. So long sentences, a lot of syntax, not very many words, types of words. So long word, long sentences, but very narrow range linguistically. All of those things, companies who are like, like think about the, you know, Exxon scandal or, you know, anything like that. They do those things and inadvertently nonprofits actually map to that. So without intending to, nonprofits use language in a way that erodes trust. Yeah. So when I think about like just the importance of trust, how, I mean, clearly how much currency, I mean, it is currency in so many ways. And then there's these things that, that are known that are such a bummer and they're so fixable. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear you talk, I always get so inspired by what's possible because I believe you're going to make it all happen. Because you're Michael <laughs> Brown. <laughs> um, and I get really like worked up about this vision of if we just kind of like cleaned up some of the language with the stuff we know, you know, I just, I wonder, I wonder what could be possible. You know, one of, one of the things, and, and I, you know, would put, put, I mean, all of the, all of the work that, that nonprofits, but, but, you know, social, socially responsible, so, mm-hmm. you know, socially driven um, organizations need, need to be thoughtful of is, well, one, what, what's the narrative and, 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 and how do you shift narrative that works in terms of your communication strategy. So what I, what I mean by that is, so one, one of the things that I, um, the Commons team has been very clear about is that we need to sh- shift a regional narrative, i.e. Um, right now, uh, well, y'all, and, and some of this I think actually sticks with COVID, but, but pre-COVID, it was we live in a region with these incredible assets and wealth, yet we have very deep pockets of inequity. We're siloed, we're fragmented, we don't work with each other. It is a very transactional state. And as a result, you know, the narrative that we want to shift, that we want to re- you know, recreate is one of 
and you've heard me use this word commonwealth, and, there, and there's intentionality there in terms of we do have mutual dependency with each other, that whether we like it or not, we need each other. And if we really want to maintain a region or foster a region that truly works for everyone, where everyone can live, work, and play here, where everyone can prosper, we need to do something different from what we have been doing. COVID comes, and I think we see a lot of things. We see, well, and it doesn't come as a surprise to many of us, but I think, you know, for many people who may not have been paying attention, the incredible inequities that existed, you know, pre-COVID have been, you know, unmasked. Yeah, and um, amplified. Yeah, and now we're pushing more people, you know, as a, as a result of COVID, both from a health standpoint, but also now from an economic standpoint, into instability. And, you know, that's going to create some interesting pressure points for a region that then will start to experience shrinking public sector resources, shrinking philanthropic resources. So all the more reason that, you know, this narrative of the collective, of the Commonwealth has to comply. So, you know, we're seeing incredible displays of community cohesion, social, you know, solidarity. Yet, can we keep that going where, you know, it is about your neighbor, but it's about your neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. And that we really do want to take care of each other and make sure that we all have what we need in order to be okay. Yeah. And that happened. I mean, this, this narrative shifting, just, I, I know that we have listeners to this podcast who are in Mexico and Germany and Israel all over the place uh, across the United States as well. But I just want to underscore for listeners, the importance of what you're saying around first, just being aware of what the narrative is. I think that even even pausing to articulate that is huge. You may not like what you learn, right? Right. <laughs> but as with any narrative, you have to, you know, there's that you have to name entertainment. True of so many things. Yeah. And that's so that's true. And I, I mean, I credit in you know our region, you know, organizations like Civic Commons, but also the community. I mean, I, I do want to sort of index way back earlier in this conversation to you acknowledging that for whatever reason, and I actually find this really, really kind of fascinating, bringing community, the people who you are in fact trying to serve into conversation does not happen all that often. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to organizations, they're like, you know, how should we craft this or that? And I'm like, well, have you asked, you know, have you asked your donors? Have you, have you asked the people you're serving? Right. And, and I don't know what that's about. I mean, it is fear-based, but I can't quite piece it together. Well, yeah. And I, it, it, I, I will acknowledge, Erica, it's a really complex thing at times to do. And I think what then happens is, People become paralyzed or institutions mm-hmm. become paralyzed and then, you know, use that as a way to excuse, you know, their, their reason for not doing it. Say, well, you know, we, we work with these um, organizations, so they represent community and that's the way you kind of get to it. Or, you know, we, you know there's a blue ribbon task force and, you know, they're, they're, you know, we've cherry picked some people to represent community. And that doesn't quite, that doesn't quite capture it. And it's hard. And, and I, you know, I wish I, I could say, look, here, here are the three things that you do in order to do it. But what I would say, and, and I, I, you know, I think especially now, 
we all need to lean into bold, innovative approaches that, you know, who knows whether or not they're going to work. But at this point, you know, you have more to gain than you can do to lose. Which, which gets into a conversation I hope we will have in a future podcast about structural barriers yeah. to, to risk and to failure and how that, you know, those dynamics play out between nonprofits and the private sector and the public sector and like who's allowed to be risky and who's allowed to be bold and who is rewarded for those things. And, you know, we're not all encouraged to be risky and bold in the same way. And there are consequences. And, and I mean, under COVID, I'm certainly seeing a, a retraction um, mm-hmm. And really going back to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, you know, mm-hmm. we are not at the top. We are not in the self-actualized zone. We're like way down. I'm just trying to get enough toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> and that sounds so goofy, but it's, you know, then it plays out on the individual level and then organizational and then, you know, sector and then, you know, and then, and then we ladder up eventually to this idea, your beautiful idea of the Commonwealth. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's, 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 it's been I mean, once again, I think we all are are wondering what our new normal um, mm-hmm. is going to be in our, our relationship with each other, and what what opportunities that that will present um, present to us. There is opportunity there that there is, and yeah. I, it's there. I just think on a day by day, hour by hour basis, sometimes it it doesn't always show up as opportunity. But I I hope that we're going to get to the other side and see it that way. Yeah, I I hope so as well. Um, you know, uh, you know, there will come a point where hopefully, you know, I will have more more to 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 share on on this. But um, really briefly, we've been in conversation with some national organizations who are who are banding together from a, from a country standpoint. From the United States standpoint, mm, to, I was wondering about that actually. To do some to do some civic design work, and and their approach in terms of that is asking Americans, everyday Americans, you know, what questions do you have as it relates to the country and the path that it's heading? But it's not just kind of gathering questions, but what what they then do, what, what they're doing is then fostering cohorts based on similarity of questions. So you and I have, you know, you live in, in Seattle, I live in um, New Orleans, but our questions are, are, are very identical. We then are become part of this virtual community where we get to engage in conversation with each other about what that means. Or oh, that's questions. cool. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, there, there are things like that which, once again, starts to break some divides or create yeah. some, some community where it's not, you know, maybe New Orleans was not the best example, but, you know, you know someone from a, you know, progressive part of the country probably does have a lot in common, you know, in, in, in some cases with someone who is in a, in a, you know, in a, a rural conservative part of the country. So part of this, you know, civic design approach is like, you know, how do you kind of one surface similarity, you know, similar, what are some of the key questions and how do you, you know, elevate that up to policymakers or, or, or others, but then two, create connection and dialogue amongst Americans you know, so part of our conversation with them is, you know, can, you know, how do we utilize that framework here, which would do some of the same thing and rather, you know, like, you know, it would flow up to kind of this natural conversation, but we could also, you know, utilize that in terms of the regional conversation. 
what are questions, you know, folks in the greater Seattle area have about the future of greater Seattle. I love that, that it's taking the, let's, let's, I mean, the way I'm going to paraphrase it back is let's make sure we're asking the right questions. I feel so frequently like we go right to answers. Yes. Um, and, and you got to be asking the right questions to get the right answers. Right. right. That is right. Okay. I want to be mindful of your time and our listeners' time. I, of course, and we have played this out in person, which I'm hoping will happen again <laughs> one day where we, we're, we like, we're like, oh yeah, 45 minutes. And then four hours later, we're like, I got to go back to work. <laughs> I end every interview by asking guests what keeps them motivated to do this work. So if motivation is about action and inspiration, you know, it's about your heart, right? And making sure that you can keep going. What inspires you and what keeps you motivated to do this gnarly, very important work? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a really easy one for me, Erica. I mean, you know, once again, thinking about the past 25 years of, of, my, of my professional career, it's all been oriented toward community, whatever, whatever other word you want to use, community building, community development, community empowerment. But this piece around being a part and then a partner mm. with those who are actually doing the work, those who are on the ground, um, those who are dealing with the everyday challenges to help them uh, develop their I mean, they already have those strategies, but but to help those strategies come to life, and then fundamentally to to scale those up so that it's not just about community X; it's about all of us. So I've been really privileged to be in roles that have allowed me to to do that, and my volunteer experience, the boards that I that I I serve on, um, give me that that exposure as well. So every morning I wake up and. I am motivated and inspired by by that, by the work that folks are doing on the ground and, you know, the ability to, to be a part of supporting and or, you know, amplifying that work. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And if you are listening and you are inspired by Michael and you want to connect with him, you can find him on LinkedIn or Twitter, where his handle is Michael C. Brown 18 and if you want to learn more about Civic Commons, you can go to www.civic-commons.org. We'll put all that in the show notes, of course. Michael, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom. And I want to thank all of you for listening uh, and for being here with us today for this conversation. If you haven't already, be sure to join the Marketing for Good Facebook group to keep the conversation going. Um, that's where we dig in a little bit deeper on all of these things and relate them back to how you can use language, how you can use words and all the rest of it. So be sure to check that out, Marketing for Good on Facebook. And until next time, keep being amazing. And thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.